I'm going to do my best today to bring to a close a long series that I am woefully inadequate to deliver. We started a number of weeks ago talking about a proper view of God and why that's important. We're going to end today not because we're out of attributes, not because we've reached some level of understanding, but, well, it's just a good time to end, I guess. We talked about God's attributes, and we said that they're not isolated character traits like we have. They're parts of a unitary being. They are not things in and of themselves, but they're the thoughts that we think about God. They're aspects of a perfect, holy, unitary God, and they're names of whatever we know about Him. And if we're to have a proper understanding of God, we cannot separate these things. We cannot think in isolated ways only about justice or only about truth, only about mercy or love, only about omniscience or only about omnipresence. We must think about them all at one time, which is part of having a proper and full view and understanding of who and what God is. We know that any of his attributes that we've talked about confirm another one. So we know that he is self-existent, and to be self-existent, he, almost, he also must be self-sufficient. We've talked about his power, and we know that he's infinite, therefore he must have infinite power. We know that he possesses knowledge, and because he's infinite, that he must possess all knowledge. So there's nothing he doesn't know. We know that he is immutable, means unchanging, and that because he's unchanging, therefore he is also faithful. All these feed into one another to get us to one unitary, solid understanding of who and what God is. They harmonize together to become one thing. And so I just want to introduce one more today. We'll see how well some of you have been keeping up. This is number 20 by my notes. A couple of you. Maybe off. Maybe I should write a list of these for later. The 20th thing about God that gives us a proper view is very appropriate for today. Actually, it's most appropriate for this Saturday. That is, God is Emmanuel. He is with us. That word's mentioned three times in the scripture. Let me read all three. Isaiah 7.14. Isaiah 7.14 says... Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah 8 and 8, a few chapters, one chapter later says, And it will sweep unto Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck. And its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. And then perhaps the most familiar to us, especially this time of year, is Matthew 1, and 23. It says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so when we think about this fact of who and what God is, and we try to place him in proper context... We know that Jesus 
is literally God with us. That is a part of who and what he is. He is with us. That he was fully God and yet fully man at the same time. Now, we could spend weeks talking about that. That is another one of those mysteries, as is all of these things, for us to try to fully grasp and understand. But just as much as we try to understand the fact that he is in all places at all times, that he has all power, that he has no beginning, understanding that he is both fully God and fully man is also outside of our grasps. But nevertheless, important and necessary for us to consider literally God with us. He was made to take flesh among us to reveal the very essence of who God is. 1 Timothy 3.16 tells us about this. It says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up to glory. We can look further to John, and we've read the first chapter of John numerous times over the last few weeks, and even in the passage I'll read to you here. John 1, 14 through 18 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him who cried out, This was he whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And so here, the reason we've read this passage multiple times is because we see the unveiling of the truth of who and what God is. The Word became literal flesh and dwelt among us. And you'll notice John says he ranks over him. Why? Because he was before John. How is that possible? Because Jesus Christ, as God, has always been. Now, he came physically at a point in time, but he has always been for all existence. Grace upon grace. We've talked about this. The law that was given through Moses, but grace and truth, attributes of who and what God is, came through Jesus Christ. Not that these things never existed before, but that they were demonstrated and shown or manifested to us. And so as we think about this, as we think about Christmas time, as we think about the uh, season that we'll celebrate in just a few short days, we remember that Jesus Christ himself was not the actual sign. Jesus was actually God with us. The sign were all the prophecies surrounding him, where he should be born, how he should be born, when he should be born. These were signs that what the prophets said and saying for thousands of years was in fact true. But Jesus Christ was not the actual sign. He was in fact God in flesh. And there is a big difference. God with us. Colossians 2 and 9 says, For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in human body. So all the things that we've talked about in the last few months lived within Christ. 
So Christ, the sovereign and holy, two attributes we talked about. Christ, the self-sufficient, self-existent, eternal, infinite, immutable, with us. All power, all knowledge, all truth lived with us. And Christ and his omniscience, omnipotence and omnipresence told us how to live. It's right here. God physically came to earth, took on a body like yours and mine, lived on this earth and told us how we should live. If we truly understand how powerful and mighty he is, if we have any understanding from the last few weeks of what just one or two of these words mean, then we ought to do what? Listen to what he tells us. But it's more than that. Christ demonstrated the very attributes that we've been talking about. Christ demonstrated wisdom and goodness and faithfulness and justice and mercy and grace. It's unbelievable. It's why my favorite hymn, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ, the everlasting Lord, late in time, behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Please as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. It's more than poetic. It's more than beautiful. It's scriptural factual truth of who and what God is. And we must understand it. We must wrestle with it. We must seek to know and understand the truth. We must put God in the proper place that he deserves and should have. And it should ask us this great question. Why? Why would a God who has all power bother with me? Why would a God who has all knowledge have any desire to come and help me? Why would a God who is the very antithesis of what is truth and justice and grace and mercy give any of it to me? Why? Why would he do that? Why would he come to earth to suffer and live like one of us? Because let's be honest, this life isn't always pleasant, is it? And I guarantee you 2,000 years ago, was more unpleasant than it is today. Why would he do all of this? Because he loves us. Because he cares about us. Because he knows the very hairs on your head. He knows every detail about you. He knows your name, the name you've been given now. And if you are saved, he knows the name that you will be given when you are living forever with him. He loves you. The God who made everything, who is all powerful. Do you see how I'm repeating myself? What am I to do but to tell you over and over and over again to help you see and have a proper view of who and what God is and to see yourself in relation to that and think about you standing before a God who was all those things that he was willing to come for you when you didn't even want him to. 
We didn't seek God. He came to us. He came to me. He came to you. And when we begin to understand why, the scriptures begin to make so much more sense. So keeping in mind all the things that we've read, all the things that we've studied, listen to this and tell me, hopefully, it means something more to you now. Philippians chapter 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being the same, being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Excuse me. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Here's where it comes. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And there we encapsulate the whole gospel. That through no effort of my own, that the very Godhead, Jesus Christ himself, came to earth, emptied himself, and took on my form, lived a life to teach and lead by example how we should live, and then died not just for a good man, but for me and for you who never, ever deserved it and never will. Raised to life, conquering death, paying the penalty, the bill that I had for my sin, and because of such is a name above all other names. That the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. Therefore, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. These are hard times. Some of us are dealing with exceptionally hard times. And what we are to do in the hard times is to continue to work out our salvation. Now, listen, that doesn't mean you work to get something. If you're going to work something out, it means you already have it. So when they're talking about working out your own salvation, that is simply that we are to work out our proper view of God. 
that we are to work out how we should behave among other people, how we are to live. And he has already told us how we should live. God is Emmanuel. God is with us. Now you might be saying, well, that's true. But then I've also heard you say that he's seated at the right hand of God. Scripture clearly says that as well. But I will argue, I think correctly, that God is still Emmanuel, as in with us today, in the form of the Holy Spirit. John 14 and 17 says, Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Do you see how quickly we run over these verses and never pick up on this? We have talked about and made an effort to understand just the smallest portion of who and what God is. And if we would just realize that just 1% more than we did last month, when we think about the fact that the Holy Spirit, who is also an equal part of the Godhead, lives inside of me, What troubles do I possibly have? What joy should I express? How confident should I be in my life? Not only did God come and physically become one of us to die for my sins to forgive me, He then departed and sent His Spirit, a full part of the Godhead, with all power, all knowledge, all ability, all grace, all wisdom, all everything we've talked about to live inside of me. God is still with us today. 1 Corinthians 6 tells us, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Then it continues, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. How do we do that? We know who God is. We lean into Him. We have Him help us in everything that we do. And so I ask the deep question, imagine what would happen if you had a proper view of God. Just imagine. Imagine what it would change. If I had a proper view of God, if I searched for these truths, if I tried to understand the things that are not, I'm not capable of understanding, It would change the world. It would change our country. It would change our community. It would change our church. It would change our friendships. It would change our business relationships. It would change our family. It would change how we study and read the scriptures, wouldn't it? It would change our very lives. A life spent trying to comprehend the incomprehensible would change everything and be a life well spent. And when you go and look at the great men and women through history who have tried to pursue this, you see something 
different. You see a life well spent trying to pursue God. Now let me pause here just for a minute and do what the scripture says, put you into memory. A few months ago, October 17th, I gave a very impassioned sermon that I titled The Downward Course of Humanity. We looked at Romans chapter 1. That's how we kicked this all off. I want to go through that very briefly one more time and put you in context here at the end. You recall from reading that, that they knew God. And I think that's kind of a trivial knowledge. I think many of them knew him as in they knew about him. The unfortunate part is most of our country, that's the same today, isn't it? Many people know about him, but they don't really know him. Look at what happens real quick. I'll outline it once again for you. They knew God, but did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. That's the beginning point of the problem. They became futile in thinking. That means they had nonsense, foolish thinking. If that continues, it leads to dark, I'm sorry, it leads to foolish and darkened hearts. Without the light, our mind becomes, we become foolish. But here's the really bad part. We think we're wise. We become absolutely fools, but we think we're really smart. And then believing that somehow we get something better, we take whatever's left of God and we exchange the glory of God for what we think we know, the things of this earth. Eventually, God gives us up to the lusts of our hearts. Our bodies begin to sin and we are fully given up, as it says, to a debased or a deprived mind. And it gets worse. We begin to be filled with unrighteousness, that's wicked, evil, sinfulness. And the final result, even though we knew better, we're reminded of that, even though we knew better, we continue to sin and we get so awful, we begin to hand out prizes for whoever the best sinner is. All you got to do is watch social media for like five minutes and you see them handing out prizes for who the worst sinner is. They don't take long. This is the downward course of humanity. This is where our society is and will continue to head unless the very first part of that changes, that we know God, that we honor him and give him thanks. The answer to all of society's problems today is this. It's real simple. We can plan all we want to. We can come up with all the programs and strategies that we want to, but it really comes down to knowing God, giving him thanks and giving him honor. And when we do that, we avoid the downward course of humanity. Why? Because we're pursuing him. But there's a problem. We cannot fear what we don't know. And just as a reminder, when I say fear, I mean a a reverent respect. We cannot respect a God we don't know. And most of the world doesn't know him. So whose job is that? It's your job. Like it or not, that's what the scripture says. We cannot fear we don't know. We cannot honor what we don't know and don't fear. We cannot thank and give praise and worship what we don't know, fear, or honor. 
we must have a proper view of God. Let me repeat the quote that I opened this up with months ago by Tozer. The heaviest obligation laying upon the Christian church today is to purify and elevate the concept of God until it is once more worthy of him and of her. Now that her is the church. We are the church. If you are saved by God's grace and know him, then you are a part of the body of Christ. You are considered the church. And so what this man of God was saying in the 60s, no less, when he looked around and saw what was going on, well, unlike a few of you, I can't really say from direct knowledge, sometimes the 60s seem like a better time to be in. Maybe not. But here's the point. The heaviest obligation laying upon the Christian church today is to purify and elevate her, or I'll say our concept of God, until it is worthy of him and of us, the body of Christ. Do we really think about God the way that we should? Or are we flippant with him? Do we think about God every day or only when trials and tribulations come our way? Do we think about the holy living God is inside of me if I am a believer and I have access to that God at any moment, at any time? Do we think about God that way? Do we live like this or do we functionally say, you know what, I took care of that Christian thing a long time ago and I go to church sometimes and I'm good to go when Jesus comes? That may be true. But that's awful. That's horrible. That is, maybe you're saved, but you have such a low view of God. But we functionally live this way, don't we? What I have tried to explain, what I have failed to explain, what I have tried to live and what I have failed to live is this, is this, is that this is the greatest adventure that could possibly befall mankind. That God wants us to pursue Him as insignificant as all of this is, however long it's been going on and however long it will last, I guarantee you I amount to absolutely nothing on the grand scheme. And yet God knows and wants to know me and wants me to know him. The all-powerful, almighty God wants me to pursue and I wrote them all down you ready to pursue the incomprehensible self-sufficient self-existent eternal infinite immutable omniscient omnipotent omnipresent wise good faithful just 
merciful, gracious, sovereign, holy God. It's the greatest thing we can do with our lives. To know Him. To pursue Him with all that we are. He deserves it. He demands it. And I think it's why we're made. So what would happen if we truly leaned into this? What would happen if we took up the charge and began to pursue God to know Him as He wants to be known? To see what it is that we should do. To know how we should live. To follow after Him. To do the things that He wants to do. Just to know Him the way He wants to be known. To have that back and forth communication. What would happen to us? Are you scared of it? I am. Because that means I lose control. But I never really had control to begin with, did I? (laughs) If we followed this adventure that God has given us to know him, to appreciate him for who and what he is, I think it would change everything. And when I say everything, I don't mean it in any less of a sense than when I said God is eternal, meaning forever. Everything about our lives would change. Don't believe me? That's what the Apostle Paul said. That I might know him. And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable even unto his death. Now, I've told you before, I try not to place on too high of a pillar the men and women in the scriptures. And more often than not, the stories, the accounts, I should say, Stories implies they're not true sometimes. The accounts, the truthful accounts of the men and women in the scripture are more often about God's faithfulness to them than their faithfulness to God. But if we want to get close to an exception, let's talk about the Apostle Paul for just a minute. I could go and read you his pedigree. You've probably heard it. I could go and read for you all the times that he was stoned and beaten and shipwrecked for the sake of God. You've probably heard all of that. And if a man who has done all of those things, who wrote by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, a good portion of the New Testament, can come to a concluding statement and simply say, that I might know him and his power, then what is my goal other than that? That I might know him. That I might know him. That only comes through personal revelation. That only comes when the Spirit of God living inside of you, if you are a believer, reveals himself to you in the quiet moments that you are contemplating who he is. 
If you think that you might know him by simply attending this service every week, you will not know him. It's the plain, simple truth. It might help. I pray that it helps. That's the goal that this helps. But you must engage with him personally. You must be still and know that I am God. You ever thought about that? I'll tell you how I live my life. I want to be still for about 25 seconds, maybe, and then find a formula to know he's God. I want to be still for about 25 seconds and then find a podcast of somebody I like to tell me about God. I want to be still for about 25 seconds and read a book about God. Failing all that, I'm still for about 25 seconds. God help us all, I reach for the news. (laughs) If we want to take this seriously, then we have to really be still and know that He is God. Ask Him to help you. Because if you know him, he's already living inside of you. He's desperately waiting and wanting to reveal the full power and magnificence of who he is. That is why he is here. That is what he wants to know us, for us to know him, this to be a two-way street so we can fellowship with him that I might know him. And yes, Even as the Apostle Paul says, and the fellowship of his suffering being made conformable unto his death. I think if we truly, truly sought to know him, it might cost us everything we think we have. Maybe some friendships. Maybe some activities. Maybe your finances. Maybe your status. Maybe your pride. Maybe it'll cost you your fear. We have to be willing to give up what isn't ours to get what God died to give us. And so I pray that for the next few days, before we celebrate the arrival of Emmanuel, God with us, that we would stop and be still and truly consider who God is. So that on Christmas morning, we can be thankful for the gift that he gave us. That he's not a God far off who's uninterested in us. That he's here inside of us. That he became one of us. To demonstrate, to show by example, to tell us how to live, and then to sacrifice himself so that we could be with him. That is the meaning of Christmas. That is why it's important. And I truly do pray this year,
that we would think about it differently. Pray with me.